Human history is the story of a struggle to gain control. On the horizontal plane, the nations of the world are like enemies in a car that's careening toward a cliff as they wrestle with one another to gain control of the wheel. On a vertical plane, human history records the ongoing rebellion of the nations against the rule of God. This rebellion is really in our bones. It started in the garden when our first parents were not content to submit to the authority of our Creator. Rather, they attempted to become like Him. That is, to become Lord of their own destiny. This rebellion continued when the nation stood at Babel and in full rejection of God's command, they said, here we will stay. Here we will build a name for ourselves. Here we will throw off the yoke of the Lord. The motto of the American colonies in their revolution against King George of England serves as a motto for the nations of this world in their rebellion against the Lord. It read, We serve no sovereign here. Now, laboring at cross purposes with this rebellion, the Lord of history is slowly, painstakingly reasserting his rule over the nations. He has every power to assert his absolute rule immediately if he chooses. But like an able neurosurgeon, he is working meticulously to rescue a people for his name. And thus he delays his final judgment upon all who rebel against him, slowly, patiently bringing a people to himself. Do you grasp the significance of what we've been saying here? Do you grasp the significance of this? Do you even believe what we've been saying here? For many, this is a rather dark way of looking at history. On Mother's Day of all days. God is a God of love after all. Isn't the Gospel good news? Not negative news about rebellion and judgment and ugly topics such as that. Others might nod their head in agreement. Yes, I understand that this is true. There is a rebellion against God. There's the lordship of God over this world and there is this tension and this battle that's going on. But if an investigative reporter followed them around for a month or two, there would be scant evidence that they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and not self. This sermon today strikes at the very core of who you are and how you view this world. It has everything to do with who you will become, with how you will live out the remainder of your days on earth and where you will spend eternity. We are dealing with life and death. We are dealing with ultimate issues. And this brings us to the second psalm in the Hebrew Psalter. We must enter the gates of this regal psalm as you make your way there to Psalm 2. We must enter the gates of this regal psalm armed with several ideas the top of these ideas and working their way down, first of all, we must enter into this psalm with the idea of God's sovereign lordship over the universe. Now that should be fairly obvious, but from a Hebrew perspective, from the idea of the Psalter, this is very important to keep in mind. God is the creator, the sustainer of all things. 
He's not only Israel's God among the pantheon of tribal deities, He is the only true and living God. This is a fundamental conviction of the Hebrew Scriptures that God rules sovereignly from heaven's throne over all the nations of the earth. So think in that large picture of the rule of God. And then let's work down with a second piece that we must bring into this psalm. Secondly, is God's election of Israel as His unique people. Israel did not deserve God's electing grace, but God mercifully chose to work out His salvation plan through a family. Through this nation of Israel, the people or offspring of Abraham, God is moving, this sovereign God over all things is moving to be a blessing to all nations. Through this nation. Through Israel. Under that third piece, very important, is God's covenant with the house of David. We had the privilege to read it earlier here this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember that there God promises to give King David an eternal dynasty. He promised that one of David's offspring would sit on the Davidic throne forever. Now there's only two ways that's possible. There will be a succession of sons of David who would reign forever. Or there would be one son who would reign and never die. At the time of the Davidic covenant, that undoubtedly would have been the sense that there will be one king after another after another from David's throne. But as time passes, it becomes clear that's not going to be the case. The kings of Judah rebel against the Lord. And the succession of kings eventually dries up So in light of historical realities, it becomes increasingly clear to the people of God that if God keeps His promises, if God will keep His promise to David, there would need to be a future king who will reign forever. And that future king and the identity of that king continues to take shape through the Old Testament as the prophets speak of this Messiah, this one anointed by God, who will carry out and fulfill the promise to David. So the sovereignty of God, the election of Israel, the Davidic covenant. We must come armed with those ideas as we come to Psalm 2 and what is classified as a royal psalm. According to Acts 4, it was written by King David and as a royal psalm, it would be a, something of a coronation psalm. Now, we don't know if this was written by David as he became the king of Israel, or if it's written by David as Solomon becomes a king. I think there might be some argument for that, but it doesn't really matter in the end. It's either for David or Solomon as this individual becomes the king in Israel. And, and the psalm highlights then the unique place of the king of Israel as the mediator of God's purpose to extend his reign over the nations and to rescue sinners. God is sovereign, Israel is the chosen nation. The Davidic covenant, this king is the representative of what God is doing in this world. And it's a glorious day when a king is crowned, isn't it? But in light of this king's calling, we are immediately sobered as David asserts rhetorically that the nations rage against God's sovereign reign. They rage against it. Why, he says, do the nations rage? In fact, they do. The people's plot in vain. Why is this? The Hebrew word rage speaks less of anger and more of restless agitation. 
Notice that word plot in verse 1. The Hebrew comes from the same root word as meditate in Psalm 1 and verse 2. Remember that as we looked at it last week. Those who are godly meditate on the Word of God. It has some idea of, of almost muttering. Here the muttering is something very different. The pictures of the nations of the earth muttering with irritation and agitation. They're frustrated. They don't like the situation. Well, why are they so upset? Why are they so agitated? And what does this have to do with the coronation of the king of Israel? Verse 2. They rage. They're agitated. They scheme. Talk under their breath in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. They set themselves. They station themselves. We use the phrase, they dig their heels in. And they take counsel together. That is, they join forces against the Lord and against His anointed. Against God who seats the king and against the king himself. Now in the immediate context, this would be that the nations hate David or Solomon, whoever's being crowned here. It means that they reject what God is doing, the Sovereign Lord seeking to reach this world. They don't like what He's doing. In the fuller context, we can see obviously as the uh, Davidic kings dry up, as Israel is taken into captivity into Babylon, that there is a fuller context. And this verse points to the nation's resistance of the greater son of David, the anointed Christ. They will rage against Him. Indeed, they will nail Him to a cross agitated, muttering rebellious curses, digging in their heels, working together to form a united front against the Lord and His King. The nations roar in unison, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's break free from the rule of God and from the rule of His King. Characteristic of the nations to interpret God's rule and saving purposes as bondage. And so, the spirit of Babel, they propose to free themselves from the Lord's rule, to throw off his oppressive chains. By nature, sinners are blinded to the reality that God's law is liberating, not ultimately restricting. Do you understand that idea? Have you experienced the liberation of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That does not seem to go together for us. We have one who is our Master, and yet we find in submitting to this Master freedom. Do you know what that means? To probe further, is there an attitude, a habit, a recurring fantasy, an interest, a pattern of thinking, maybe a relationship. And you would say, when I think of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the law of God, I find that stifling. Jesus Christ cramps my style. There's things I would like to do, ways I would like to free myself, and the presence of the Lord restricts what I'd like to do. This psalm draws the large picture of nations rebelling against Christ, but such rebellion operates within our own individual souls as well, doesn't it? 
to sense that the law of the Lord is restrictive. That the Lordship of Jesus Christ cramps my style. It's possible for us to imagine God's call to holiness is harmful. That living according to the dictates of the flesh is where real freedom is found. Is it bondage to you, for instance, to know that lusting for someone who is not your mate is something you will never do again without admitting that it's wrong and confessing it to the Lord? That He'll always be there in that situation? And that you will always need to yield to His Lordship? Does that seem restrictive? Is it bondage to you to know that being discontent with what God has given you right now in status and life, in wealth or whatever it is, that right now what He's given me, I must be content. If there's discontentment, I will always need to repent and to turn that over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I must be content. Is it bondage to you to reject a way of life that is centered on self and personal satisfaction? To live in a way that is different than the give me, please me, honor me orientation of this world. That comes very easily to us. Give me, please me, honor me. The Lordship of Jesus Christ says we must go a different direction. Is that restrictive? I speak to all of us here. It applies to all of us, but perhaps to those who are younger particularly, to the children who are here, it is important for you to recognize someone needs to tell you this, that there is no bondage like sin. There is no bondage in this world that is worse than walking in sin. No matter how much we may enjoy it in the short term, sin is bondage. There is no freedom on the other side of it like serving Christ. Our soul will be made subject to something. Christ leads us, to use the words of Hosea, with cords of kindness and bands of love. Not with restrictions that harm us, but with restrictions that ultimately free us. When God says no, that is our soul's freedom. When God says yes, that is our soul's freedom. And it's never otherwise. We live in a world that continues to proclaim this very message that we find in this first stanza of Psalm 2. That we should rage against the bonds of God. To break the cords free. To be our own person. To do what we want to do. That is a greater bondage. Do you get that? Has this realization dawned upon you? Will you leave this assembly today seeking to run your own show? Or will you go from here rejoicing, I have the privilege and the freedom to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Said another way, are you willing to follow a rejected Savior whose authority the nations despise? David records the nation's response to God's rule in the next stanza of the hymn, God responds to the nation's rebellion. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
God laughs because He's wholly unintimidated by their agitated murmurings. It means nothing to Him. Their arrogance is laughable. Their folly is ridiculous. His sovereign, universal, heavenly throne is in no way threatened by their limited temporal, earthly schemes. We have two cousins here. A little three-year-old girl and a 20-year-old young man. And they're interacting at family gathering somewhere and the little cousin the little girl gets mad at the older cousin and she runs up to him and starts to beat him with her with her fist on the on his kneecap and what does he do i mean he just kind of steps back and smiles it's sort of it's sort of humorous what's she going to do to him then as it becomes clear that this is deep and there's something wrong his face falls into seriousness as he lovingly deals with her. We have just something of a, of a slight picture there of what's happening here. The nations are raging against God. They want to bring His power down. And He just smiles with derision because it's so foolish. But then His face becomes serious and intense and we see the second reaction, not only derision here, but then secondly, anger, verse 5. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. So the derision, the laughter at the ridiculousness of this rebellion gives way then ultimately to what it must, to wrath, because God is a God of justice. And that gives way then to sovereign initiative, verse 6. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does God respond to the nations raging against Him? I've set my king. You've taken your stand against me. I've set my king here on Zion. That is Jerusalem, which God chose as the place to display His glory and to mediate His grace in the temple worship. Here on this holy hill, God sets His anointed one his king. And he doesn't care what the nations think of that. In the sense that he's not intimidated by their rebellion. This is his sovereign choice. This is his king. So into the teeth of the world's rebellion, over the din of the nation's strivings against his purposes, God sets and seats his king on his hill. Now at this point in the psalm, the narrator steps back back into the shadows, and the newly anointed king now steps forward and speaks by way of testimony about what God has done. Stanza 3, beginning at verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember, the Israelite kings were called the sons of God. Not in the sense that they were divine offspring, but in the sense that they spoke for God and ruled with God's authority. So what does it mean in the immediate context? This is coronation day. Coronation for the Davidic king, and the king stands forward and says that God has spoken to me. I am his son. I am now seated here to carry out the purposes of the sovereign God as he works among the nations. I am his son. That's the immediate context. But we know in the fuller context, this is an idea that is used to describe Jesus Christ as He comes later, the greater Son of David. A reference to Jesus whose day 
was His resurrection, which proved His divine Sonship. He was always the Son of God, but it's in His resurrection that this is demonstrated. So where you, you see in the, in the narrow sense, you see the King of Israel on His coronation day saying, I am the Son of God. Ultimately, it's pointing to Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, who when He rises from the dead is demonstrated to be the Son of God in a unique and fuller sense. Do you need motivation to come to church? That's it right there. That'll do it. We gather on the Lord's Day to announce and celebrate that Jesus Christ is God's Son, His conquering, risen Lord. He has defeated death, and on this first day of the week, we come together to sing songs this world knows nothing about. It cannot describe because that sense of purpose is not born within its soul by the redemption of the Spirit of God. But we come as those born again to celebrate Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We serve a risen Savior who has conquered death. And so we come to sing, I am the Son of God, says the Davidic King. I am the One who rules as His representative and ultimately Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Secondly, then in verse 8, ask of Me, the King, again, reporting God's position. Ask of Me, God says to the King, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is no offer to indulge the King's selfish ambition. It's, this is not a malicious land grab. The King serves the purposes of God. And one purpose of God is to extend the Davidic King's rule so as to spread the glory of God's name to the nations. God's plan has always been to rule the universe and to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham. And so, I will make the nations your heritage shows the plan of God worked out through His King. Now again, as we learn how the Bible's put together and how we are to interpret it, we don't take this psalm and say that it talks only about Jesus. It talks about the King who's there, David, Solomon, whichever one it is. And it has a very distinct purpose. God, the Sovereign Lord, will be working through this King to extend His rule through the nations. But as we learn to put the Bible together, we need to also recognize that there is a fuller, greater concept here. Think of how this applies to the greater Son of David. I will make the nations your heritage the ends of the earth, your possession. Do you hear there the words of Jesus Christ? All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them everything that I've said. Go to the entire planet and tell them what I've said. Why? All power is given to me and I will be with you to the end of the age. I will go with you through this planet as you proclaim the message of Jesus Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And I will give Him His heritage among the nations. To the ends of the earth, they will become the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. The king continues to quote God in verse 9, and you shall break them, or we could translate it, you may break them. He gives them this, free, him this freedom. 
you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's a rod of iron? A rod of iron is, is a, a scepter, a king's scepter, symbolizing a powerful rule because it's made here of iron. And this king will crush his enemies to pieces like a potter's vessel. Clay pots, earthen pots, baked in the sun, maybe in a kiln. They were everywhere. They were very easy to come by and they'd chip and somebody just break up this old pot, smash it down into the earth. Archaeologists have found so many of these pieces of pottery, they don't even collect them. They're just so universal at these sites where ancient cities have been buried. So this is an image that's very obvious to those who read this. Like a pot is crushed with a stick and ground to powder. This is what the king will do to the enemies of God. Now our culture, let's be frank, gags on the notion of God at war. We just don't have room for that in our culture's thinking. But the Bible repeatedly warns us that a day of judgment is coming. And it must come because God is indeed just. It doesn't really matter what we think of the idea. What matters is what God the Sovereign Lord is doing. He created this world good. He created it right. All was well. And He's going to return the world there. The time that He delays is simply an evidence of His patience to continue to call the unrepentant to repentance. But God must, because He is just and because He is good, return this world to good. Ultimately, that will necessitate the judgment of those who rebel against Him. This world cannot be good when there are people who rebel against the rule of God. So eventually, this judgment will fall. This judgment is on its way because God is a God of justice and He will set it all right. We come to stanza 4 and we find the nations here called then to submit to God's rule. They rage against the Lord. He responds... And then there is the emphasis upon the work of the king as the Lord's anointed. And now, an address to the nations who are called to submit to God's rule. Verse 10 in the fourth stanza, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. What did you hear there? Those are words of mercy. Those are words of distinct grace. Here are the nations raging against God and they're offered a call to repentance. You might say God is a God of wrath and God is a God of justice and you are a sinner. Run and hide. But it doesn't say run and hide. He says be wise. Be warned. It's a call to repentance. What should the nations who reject God's anointed do? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. They should submit to God's sovereign rule. They should serve Him. That recognizes God as Master. And they should rejoice with trembling. Does that work? Rejoice with trembling seems like an oxymoron. It's a conflict in terminology. But for those who have come to understand what the Bible teaches, this makes perfect sense. 
to rejoice with trembling? Do you get it? Do you get it? We come to hear the message of the Bible that the wages of sin is death and that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. We come to recognize that we deserve the judgment of God. So if we gain a true sense of the Lordship of Christ and a pending judgment on sinners, we tremble. But then we hear the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ who lays down His life, though the nations raged against Him in His crucifixion, He takes the place of the sinner, pays the penalty of sin, and rises from the dead to show that He is the ultimate Son of God who will rule from Jerusalem's throne forever and ever. Humbled then by Christ, we embrace this freedom that is in Him, this forgiveness of sin, We tremble with respect at this One who is rightly our judge, but we rejoice that this same One gives us salvation freely by His grace alone. He clears the record of wrongs and He gives us the righteousness of His Son. We rejoice with trembling. The proper response to Christ continues to the Anointed One of God, continues in verse 12, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. So in some sense, the kissing of the Son avoids His righteous judgment for His wrath is quickly kindled against rebellion, against rejection. So the rejection of the Messiah is the raging against Him and wanting to be free from His bonds The answer to it on the other side is to kiss the Son. To pay homage. Subjects of the realm showed ultimate homage to their King by kneeling before Him and kissing His feet. Kiss the feet of the Son in homage. Sounds like a kind of strange thing to us in a culture that knows nothing about that. But I'd like you to go with me on a brief journey. You know the scene, if you know the Bible at all. Luke tells us about it. There's a public dinner to which Jesus was invited. There was a Pharisee that held the dinner, and his name was Simon, and he was a very important person. And as was the case in the culture that day, the important people that were invited to this formal dinner reclined at the table and people from outside who were not invited were allowed to come into the room and observe the dinner and to hear the wisdom that was passed between these important people. Luke in his account of this dinner tells us that behold, a woman from the city who was a sinner came in among them. He uses the word behold. It's kind of shocking here. She walks into the, into the room and she's there with all these important, good, godly people undoubtedly a prostitute as a sinner from the city described that way. And what did she do? She washed and wiped the feet of Jesus and then she kissed them. Why did she kiss His feet? I don't know if she knew about Psalm 2, but very possibly she had heard of this psalm and been taught it as a child of Israel as a daughter of the sons of Abraham. And she rejoiced with trembling 
to kiss the son, to kiss his feet in homage, for she knew what Simon didn't get, that he was the anointed one of God. And I think it would be right for us to ask, would I really do that? Would I kiss the son's feet? I remember a day very distinctly in my spiritual journey working through this idea, and I thought about that for a while. Would I kiss the feet of Jesus if he showed up today? Would I be willing to do that? That seems sort of weird. Now, there's some cultural things we have to work through. We don't have any categories for that. But as I thought through it, I realized that my devotion for Christ was weak. That seemed to turn me off. And as I worked through it, it was a sanctifying process to come to the place of seeing myself in an act of devotion, standing with this prostitute, bending over and kissing the feet of Christ. Would we do that? Do we recognize, and here's the key, not so much what would I do, but the key is He deserves it. If we come to realize who He truly is, He is the one who deserves the most abject spiritual poverty in His presence to humble ourselves in the ultimate way to get down on our knees and to kiss His feet? Do we recognize the rightness of such devotion? The only woman in that room, the only person in that room that was thinking clearly was the woman from the city who was a sinner. She knew who Jesus was and she kissed the Son. If you know who He is, you'll do the same, at least figuratively. Do we recognize, secondly, the rewards of such devotion? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, the psalm ends. In contrast to the agitated nations, there are those who humble themselves. They come with their sin, they fall to their knees, and they kiss the Son, and the Son sets them free and loves them with an infinite love. Indeed, as Luke bears out, he himself will gird himself and serve us. The choice is straightforward. We reject the rule of the Son and perish, or we take refuge in the Son and we enter his blessing. Commentator Derek Kidner calls this a, quote, psalm of fierce delight in God's dominion and his promise to the king. Do you take such fierce delight in God's rule through Jesus Christ? One day we will leave this world behind with the raging of the nations against the Lord and against His people. One day we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we will bow the knee and acknowledge that He is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who He is. He rises from the dead to make this clear. He ascends to the Father's right hand. He pours out His Spirit today. He rules this world with sovereign authority. And we must ask ourselves, do I serve this Lord? Are you ready for the day that you will bow before Him? Do you look forward to that day to kiss the Son? Are you resisting the Lordship of Jesus with a stiff neck? Or with trembling joy? Do you affirm the declaration, 19th century Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, who said, I quote, In the total expanse of human life, 
there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, the Anointed One, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is Mine. He is Lord of all. There are those among us here who need to respond by turning to Him. To be reconciled with this reality. You say, if someone chased my life, if they did a documentary on it, if somebody was following me and witnessing my life, there's only one conclusion they could come to, and that's that I'm Lord of my own life. If that's the case, this is a call to you to change, to turn and to come to the Lordship of Christ. The beauty of it is that He stands with open arms. But you need to acknowledge your rebellion against Him. It may not be as conscious as that of some, but it's real. You need to trust the Messiah that God has sent. Jesus Christ as the Savior from our sins. The One whose wrath you cannot withstand is the same One now who stands with open arms of grace patiently waiting until the time of judgment comes. Run into the security and comfort of those arms. Trust in the blood that He has shed for you. Find your soul's shelter in the shade of the crucified and risen Savior. He is the Lord, but you can tremble with rejoicing before Him. Come to Him today. For those of us who know salvation in Christ, our call is to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, and to find eternal refuge in the One through whom God blesses the nations, Jesus, God's anointed Savior, and to gather with His people habitually to lift up and magnify and praise His name for who He is. To live in this hope, as Isaiah the prophet put it, to live in this hope, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. There's a day when the son of David, living in Jerusalem, will occupy a position to which the nations flow. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. That's a different world. That's not the world in which we live. But that's the world that's coming. Where the people will say, Let's go on a trip. Let's go see Messiah and learn His will. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. They will flow to His throne and that He will teach them His life-giving, liberating law. That day will come. May we set our hope and our focus on that day. May we rest in it and trust in it as we kiss the sun bow for prayer. Father, we give You thanks for this Word of truth. And pray, Father, that You will deepen us and strengthen us in it. I pray that anyone without Christ would seek out counsel as they leave today. And that this would be the day of salvation. 
I pray for those of us who know You. Father, may this deepen our resolve to live for the glory of our Savior, to worship in spirit and in truth, to gather, to serve, to rejoice with trembling, and to do homage to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all praise and glory. Deepen us, root us in this truth, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.